are better people than me that can explain that. So I'm going to just reference some resources for you guys if, if you are hung up on these. And if you're going to be honest with yourself, if you're really sitting there thinking like, yeah, I just, I don't think it's true because of some logical algorithm that, that I'm maintaining, then I hope you're actually going to read some of this stuff. And if you don't, maybe concede to yourself that that's not actually what your problem is. So I'd start with something like what uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy um, or C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, or better yet, both. They, they actually really complement each other really, really well. And Boethius, I mean, this was written, I want to say the end of the 7th century, beginning of the 8th century. Um, so it's kind of ancient, kind of crossing right over that threshold of the Middle Ages. But reading ancient literature, like for me, the first time I picked up something like this, I was completely floored by the fact that none of our objections and none of our hangups are new. We all like to think that, oh yeah, I've got this really novel reason for why this is true or why this isn't true. But they were talking about this stuff thousands of years ago and in way more sophisticated levels than any of us are. So that's what I love about reading ancient literature. And it's intimidating because you think, oh, it's going to be like a tough to read translation because you're used to reading Shakespeare in high school. And that was only like 500 years ago. So something that's like 13 or 1400 years ago, it's like, oh, that's going to be way, way out of my, my, my ability to comprehend. But it's actually, if you get a good translation, it's really, really accessible. The philosophy is deep. So this is your exposure to the, the rich intellectual, intellectual tradition of our faith. But the language is pretty accessible. So if you're an intellect, I would start there. I'd, I'd pick up Athanasius' On the Incarnation to really understand what we mean by, by Christ as God incarnate. Um, St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, you guys have probably all heard of that. Um, that's not, it's volumes, so it's not the kind of thing you just pick up and you start reading through. Um, you can kind of attack it a little bit at a time like that, but more than anything, it's a reference. So if you have some questions, some burning question that you're stuck on, um, you could just Google it. Google your objection and St. Thomas and Summa, and he, I guarantee he's addressed it. He's thought of everything that people can think of, and um, unless it's something about like, like computers or something like that, which he didn't have access to. But otherwise, I mean, he's, he's covered a lot of ground. Uh, G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man is a great sketch of history and, and the role of Christianity within it. He goes all the way back to the, the first civilizations of ancient Greece and Babylon, and, and, and Egypt, and he talks about um, how they all foreshadow and point to God's plan of salvation. So when we talk about salvation history, Chesterton's tying that into all of history. So he, it's this great sketch of all of, of history, and it's really, even, even prehistory, he kind of touches on it. So it's, it's a good one to look at. Um, and then you guys have probably heard of Scott and Kimberly Hahn. They wrote a book called Rome Sweet Home. I haven't read that one myself, but my wife did before she converted, and a few other people I know that converted. That's sort of like the last domino in your, your march towards Catholicism. Um, so I hear that's a good one, so maybe pick that one up too. So to get going, um, I've got an analogy, a bit of my own experience, and then just some personal practical application. And just for the record, is anybody keeping track of time? Garrett, do you, are you watching that? Because I, I have, I'm going to go over time, I can almost guarantee. So maybe just, just yell at me at some point if we're like down to five minutes or something. Okay, so first the analogy. So I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's revolutionary space travel company where they're, in case you don't know how to send your Tesla to Mars, they're figuring that out for you. Um, well, they're currently responsible for having built the most powerful operational rocket in the world called the Falcon Heavy. And you guys might remember, I think this was back in March or something, they did their first big test launch of the, of the Falcon Heavy, and they had a bunch of fanboys in like the, the lobby of the company just like freaking out as this thing took off. It's kind of hilarious to watch it. But the Falcon Heavy features an impressive payload which sits on top of a towering structure of first and second stage engines. The first stage is built out of three engine cores composed of 27 engines that when started will produce over 5 million pounds of thrust that are capable of lifting 141,000 pounds in the payload, which is just that little module up top, um, which in the case of that test had a, a car with a, a, little, a little spacesuit guy in it. So now I, I, can't, I couldn't even begin to describe what the launch sequence looks like for something like that, but I imagine it, it's something like the flipping of a switch or a series of switches, as in you get a countdown and then someone hits a, f a switch 
And then you get that impressive pyrotechnic display and then you get liftoff and all that kind of good stuff. And if, it's, if that's accurate, it's gotta make you wonder, how is it possible that something as seemingly insignificant and delicate as just the flip of your finger on one end can produce over five million pounds of power and thrust on another end? Doesn't that seem kind of implausible? Well, I think the answer to that question is you've got to convert that small bit of energy through a system. You've got to layer one deliberate and intelligent decision on another. You have to, you have to build one small component and then plug it into the next in a sequence, in exactly the right sequence, and then when you release a surge of electricity at the proper point of entry, it invades the circuitry and it awakens an electrical system connected to a computer that methodically initiates the process and this is my favorite part, of setting fire to one million pounds of rocket fuel. Like I can't think of anything more reckless than strapping yourself into a column with a million pounds of, of liquid oxygen, I think is what rocket fuel is, and then just lighting a match and seeing what happens, right? Like that's pretty, that's pretty insane. This is how you leverage the power of all these elements to produce something far more powerful than any of us could make in one decision or one choice or one single component. Now here's the thesis, well, to some degree the thesis of my talk, which is that I think our lives are a lot like that. And I alluded that to the beginning. But I want you to keep in mind this, this idea of a system of life based on small decisions that you make each and every day that turn into something big. Because we tend to think of our lives as the outcomes and the outcomes that we'd like to realize as, as the sum of these big decisions. So maybe for you guys it's, it's, it's graduating from school or marrying um, Susie or, or her sister, or maybe it's, it's starting your own company or getting that dream job or something like that. Um, we, we tend to think that like, if we just exert enough effort in a particular direction, then our obstacles will be cleared from our path. Someday we're gonna make this grandiose decision and we're gonna light fire to a thousand pounds of rocket fuel and it's gonna explode and send us to the moon just magically, that's gonna happen, without all the decisions that go into calibrating and coordinating what happens when that explosion takes place. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, he says, you can't grow a beard in a moment of passion. And this one, I really, I really, I obviously, I identify with. You can't grow a beard in a single step. You have to reaffirm that decision every day when your friends are making fun of you because you've got like a patch over here and nothing over there. And it starts to get itchy and it's just uncomfortable and it looks really goofy until after a hundred or so, well, it doesn't take that long. Let's say 20 decisions on a daily basis plus every hour of every day, you can turn around and say, hey, I've got a beard, finally. In, in my case, I was really lucky because uh, I didn't know I could grow a beard. I went on my honeymoon with my wife. I had never tried to grow anything out before. And we were traveling like, at a pretty heavy pace across Europe, so I just didn't look in a mirror and I didn't shave. And then by the end, I had a beard, and I was like, oh. I didn't, and, she was, and she liked it, so. <laughs> it doesn't happen in a moment of passion. You can't fall in love in a single step. I, I would dare you to try it. Start scoping out the people that are around you right now. And then after the talk is over in the next break, you could go up to them and be like, you know, you look like your facial features are all in the right place. What do you say? Let's fall in love. Let's get married. See, let me know how that works out for you because it did not work out for me very well when I tried that. I didn't actually, I'm joking. Okay, so let me share with you a, a bit of a sketch from my own life to try and help establish some of the relevance in all of this. So it's not so abstract. So some of you guys may know I'm a convert to the Catholic Church, and I'm not gonna get into much detail about that. If you are interested in the, the whole story, um, you can check out my YouTube channel. There's a two-part series on why I converted to the Catholic Church, so you can take a look at that. Uh, but I do wanna share a little bit about what, what led up to it um, for me. So I was raised with a fairly common set of incoherent ideals uh, secular ideals that I had inherited from my teachers and my parents that was largely based on just do what everybody else is doing and, and hopefully things will work out. But we don't, we're not really convicted in, in, in any sort of ideology or principle or anything like that. Let's just see how things work out. Um, and in school... I was exceptionally, and I, and I really mean exceptionally mediocre. I had, I had this rare gift for being able to detect 
how much effort would be needed to achieve a grade that I could live with, and then just squeaking in underneath that. And this, this worked out okay for me because it meant that I would have more time to play guitar in a punk rock band and go skateboarding and snowboarding and hanging out with my friends. But as college was approaching, um, I knew a lot of my, my friends were lining up their, their college program, so I thought, well, I, I'm gonna need to go off to college too. Um, but I, I decided I'd continue to exert this, this minimum amount of effort. And I had uh, an innate talent for, for art, like I could draw and paint. And because none of my other friends were, had any interest in that kind of thing, uh, I, I fancied myself something of an artist because I could sit down at parties and, and do caricature sketches of them and things like that. And so I thought I was a really good artist. Um, so I thought I could just ride that, that talent without any effort into college and into a career in graphic design. So I applied at uh, the visual communication program I found in a college in town, and it turns out that they needed a portfolio as, as part of that application process. So in true minimum effort fashion, I took a bunch of my drawings, going back to the time and paintings from when I was like 13 years old up until that point, and just threw them in a binder and handed that in and walked away and waited for my acceptance letter. Um, as it turns out, I did not get in which meant that as most of my friends were going off to college, our first year of college, which we were all super excited about, I was gonna be stuck working part-time at the paint store I'd been working at through high school. And to give you a little glimpse of my attitude, um, this, this paint store, we part-timers, we used to arrogantly, not to their faces, but arrogantly make fun of the full-time employees, we called them the lifers, because they weren't doing anything important with their lives. And here I was, crossing over the threshold into adulthood, not even being able to achieve that level of success. So this was like a sobering moment of humility for me. And then to top it all off, I crashed my car. Um, it's hard to drive where I live, it's just this icy skating rink. So I crashed my car, and uh, so I couldn't even get to the job that I resented in the first place. And then my girlfriend, and this, this was not a good relationship to begin in the first place, she started to lose interest in me because I couldn't, I couldn't drive her around anymore. <laughs> so this was a devastating experience for me. And I was just like desperate for a way forward. I, was, I, was, I couldn't believe that things were working out so poorly at this point in my life. And I think this is a common experience. We devise this theory of life and then we go out and live our lives according to that theory and the system we build around it, and then we run into a wall called reality. And then fragments of our life explode everywhere, and we have to try and like pick up the pieces. That's literally what happened to me. I literally, well, it was a tree in this case, but pieces of my car were all over the place, and CDs out on the road and stuff, and cars were driving by just like, look at this goofball, and I'm like picking stuff up, and thoroughly embarrassed, devastated that I didn't have my car anymore, and just trying to cope with this situation. So then, whether that happens literally or metaphorically to you, we go into recovery mode and we, we try to insulate ourselves and we start wearing our pajamas for weeks at a time and eating ice cream or playing video games or whatever you do to comfort yourself, right? And you just, you just nurture your wounds and lick your wounds for a little while. And then you start to build back up the courage to, to go back out and recalibrate that theory of life again and, and to try and do it again. And each time we do that, like that pattern will, will continue for a lot of people. Um, it, it continues to some degree, I think, for everybody. But it depends on how, how accurate your recalibration is and how much feedback reality wants to give you. Um, but hopefully those walls are a little bit less painful each time as you go through it. And you can gain a little more humility as you go. And, and gain some respect for the uncompromising nature of reality. <clears throat> so it was at this point in my life that... Uh, by circumstance, it was very apt that this happened to me at a very vulnerable point in my life, I was reintroduced to the question of God. And, and again, if you want to hear the details about that, you can check out my YouTube channel. But let's just say it was, it was effective for me. So that when I went back out, when I had my recalibration was based on the wisdom of this ancient, ancient faith and this ancient... Uh, you know, as I, as I warmed up to Catholicism, this ancient institution that had been, that had invented hospitals and higher education and has been thinking about thinking longer than anyone else in history, period. Um, so I was very, I was very lucky 
that I could go back out and rely on this. I didn't have to blindly go back out and, and, and try to implement my own, my own guess, my own theory of life. And the sad part is that I've seen a lot of people that I know and love have to go through that process. Um, and that's why I emphasize this word blindly, because I see them blindly just taking a guess and saying, okay, this is how I think it works. And then they go and do it, and they hit another wall. <clears throat> so things at that point, I would say, improved for me quite quite dramatically. And, and I, I still have had struggles in my life, but again, I was liberated from that pattern of, of, of walking back out and, and hitting walls that, that were just unexpected. So as time progressed, I went into RCIA. I, I met the woman who would eventually become my wife, and I, was, I did get accepted to college, um, two different programs. By the time I was halfway through my second program, I had been added to the dean's list of, of academic achievement, which, if you remember what I was mentioning about high school, I had never achieved anything academically before in my life. So, so things seemed to, to really improve as I started to draw from the wisdom of, of our faith and of our church. But like I said, I mean, I've, I've had to watch other people that I deeply love and care about continue to hit those walls over and over again until some of them were so traumatized by that experience that they, they haven't been able to get back up and try again. Like they're completely paralyzed by that experience and they don't want to go through it again. And this is the darker part of this idea of our lives being based on a system because you can also build a system that you didn't intend to and one that you're not going to want to have once it's built. That's how we end up actualizing a life that, that we don't really intend. If employing a system that you, that you deliberately make is like hitting a switch and watching it take you where you want to go, then a system that you don't, you don't intend to build is like being strapped into something that just takes you off, drags you off where you don't necessarily want to go with little regard for what you do or you don't want. So these are systems like, like lust and compulsiveness and addiction. <clears throat> Like when we're kids, everybody's asked this at some point when you're a kid. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody's like, ooh, I want to be addicted to pornography or to alcohol or to drugs, right? Those outcomes happen because people make small, seemingly insignificant decisions that when combined over time, they mix with their DNA and they produce a system that is more powerful than their ability to say no. So the point I'm trying to leave you guys with is a sense of just how incredibly complicated life is. And I know you don't feel the full impact of this because you've been nurtured by, yeah, that's awesome, thanks, Karen. By a system that is somewhat informed by your parents. Your parents have largely built a lot of this system for you up until this point. But now that you're moving into the phase of adulthood, you have to implement your own system. And it's streamed together, choice after choice, um, over the course of an entire lifetime starts to yield results that are often unexpected. And that's, now that I'm a, a bit further down the road, I can, I can, I can confirm that this is true. Um, you start to make these decisions and then things happen and you look back and you're like, what, how did this happen? And like I said, nobody, nobody aims to become an addict. Every single person in that situation looks back and they're like, I had no idea that these decisions were gonna con contribute to this outcome. Because every time they made that decision, it seemed small and insignificant. When you plug them all together, big things happen, right? And you light a match to it, and it explodes, and it's, it's reckless. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that our lives are dramatically more complex than a rocket ship. And we've already established how complicated a rocket ship is. And I think I can get away with saying that because we've solved spaceflight. Collectively, as the human race, we've figured out how to get something into orbit. But we have not solved the riddle of the human person. We haven't figured out how to provide absolute uh, health for, for our psychology or our bodies or our souls. And again, I know people who, people very close to me, people who share my genetics, who have been in treatment for mental illness their entire lives. And every time they hit a wall, the recalibration that the experts give them is let's adjust your meds just a little bit. And I don't want to say medication is wrong or anything like that. That's not my point. But that's not all there is to life. You don't just, you don't just calibrate your medication to go out there and live your life. Um, so we haven't, we haven't figured this out. And, and like I said, they're, they're still hitting walls. They're getting worse as time goes on. The experts don't have this figured out. But we have figured out space travel. 
So you and I, in light of how complicated this is, if we have any hope of building a system of life we're living, we need help. We need divine help, I would argue. We need to consult the one who designed us in the first place. So C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, quote, There's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then just trying to stop it. And I'm afraid that this is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds. Something that interferes, something that stops you having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of the human machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught how to use a machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that. I don't know if you guys remember like getting your driver's license in the first little time going out with your instructor. Same kind of thing. Because of course, there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work. End quote, by the way. So we've somehow bought into this idea that rules are an infringement on our freedom. And I would say that rules that don't correlate to reality actually are an infringement. You think of sort of tyrannical political structures. But rules that do correlate to reality are, are good measures for, for living a life that, that will yield the best kinds of results. It's like playing a sport. Imagine if, if at the end of this session we got everybody together and said, hey, by the way, we're going to go outside and play a game of anarchy ball. And you all went out there, and I just took a ball, and I threw it in the crowd, and I said, okay, go. And you're like, well, how do we play? And I was like, I don't know. It's anarchy ball. Just, just go. And you're like, well, okay. Like rules in sports, they, they give us the freedom to actually play them. So rules, rules maximize our potential. I mean, otherwise it's just arbitrary and pointless and it's obviously not going to be any fun if, if we don't know how to, to do what we're supposed to be doing. Or take something like good nutrition and fitness. And this is something that, that again, is, is somewhat anecdotal from my own life because when I first became a father... Well, let me, let me back up here a little bit. When, when I was a kid, I was just always out riding my bike or skateboarding or playing hockey down at the pond by my house. And I, fitness just came naturally because you're always just out there doing stuff, right? But as I became an adult, I started to neglect that because I was, I was adulting. I was doing adult things and I didn't have time to go skateboarding. And my fitness levels severely declined. So that by the time I had kids uh, and they got old enough to a point where I could take them out tobogganing or, or skating or like everything where I come from is winter stuff or skiing or something like that. Um, I, it would kill me. Like I remember the first time I took them all skating and I was like on my skates and I was holding them up and like at the end of that I was just completely done. I, I had no energy. My feet were killing me. It was, it was brutal. And luckily, I'm not going to go into this whole side of my story, but luckily at a certain point, because of health reasons, I, I had to start getting in shape. So I started running and, and working out at, at various intervals. And, and now when I go do those things, I can enjoy them. I don't have to sit there just watching my kids do, do something that looks like it's like nostalgic for me. I can get out there and actually do it with them. There are times when we get a bunch of families together, like we're part of a, a homeschooling co-op where, where there's a lot of families involved and we'll go out there and we'll you know, play soccer or football or go like, tobogganing. Do you guys toboggan here? Do you get, get enough snow for that? Sort of. Hudson does? It might be called sledding. Sledding, sledding. <laughs> tobogganing. Yeah, that's a weird word. Isn't it? I don't even know where that comes from. Canadian, there you go. You guys need to go tobogganing. It's a lot of fun. It's as fun as it sounds. But anyways, like we go do stuff like that with these families and most of the parents are sitting off to the side and the ones that aren't, like so we have like toboggan hills or sledding hills, right? And usually if you got little kids, you've got to drag them all the way up the hill. And that is brutal physically. Like, like you're really feeling it in your legs. And I'm usually one of the only parents who's out there doing it and not like dying afterwards. So, and that's because I observe our... Uh, rules and a regimen of nutrition and fitness that maximizes my potential and my ability to go out there and make choices that I would otherwise not be able to make. Okay, so I've just bulldozed my notes here. So, okay, let's get, let's get back on track here. Okay, so it would stand to reason that if there's a user's manual for the human machine that, that Lewis was kind of alluding to, then we should be taking advantage of it. But the only reasonable source 
for a user's manual like this would come from the one who designed us in the first place. Our only hope for living the kind of life that can leverage millions of pounds of joy and peace and happiness if there actually is a God who designed us and he's willing to let us in on that blueprint. <clears throat> and if the church is right, that's exactly what he's done. It's this culmination of the Judeo and then the Christian tradition and the synthesis of ancient Greece and ancient Rome into what we now understand to be the church's teachings, um, which are really nicely summarized for us, for us in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So if you don't have one of those, I mean, that's another good reference. It's not something you read, but it's something that you reference. If you've got a question or you're, you're, you're stuck on something, it's a, good, it's a really good reference to have. <clears throat> that, along with scripture and just the, the, the unlimited resources you can immerse yourself into to, to learn your faith, that's, that's our user's manual for a life that, that can leverage that kind of power and that kind of thrust. And there's a lot of data that bears these principles out. And now, so I'm gonna read some statistics to you, but before I do, there's always this inevitable cry that people, that, that statistics are met with, which is correlation doesn't equal causation. So I don't have to believe that. It's like, okay, yes, fine. Correlation doesn't equal causation. And I would never try to argue that any one of these things leads to a life of happiness or necessarily leads to the things that they supposedly correlate to. But that tends to be a real cop-out for a lot of people. If you ever hear some sort of evidence, some statistical evidence that, that contradicts your assumptions, people act like that's a fail-safe. Correlation doesn't equal causation. I don't have to believe that. But if we're going to accept any kind of evidence, we have to start to connect some of these dots. So on the whole, I think you'd have to be pretty close-minded to, to listen to what I'm about to read you and say, oh, correlation doesn't equal causation. Okay, so let's start with Dr. Lisa Miller. Sorry, I'm just going to grab another drink. Who is the director of clinical psychology at Columbia University, uh, their teacher college. She's been researching the correlation between religiosity and mental health risks and has found that children with a religious upbringing reaching back to their formative years had an 80% decreased risk of major depression in families that were otherwise very high risk. So these are families that, you know, their parents, their grandparents, their siblings are high risk genetically for depression. If they have a religious upbringing going back to their formative years, 80% decreased likelihood that this is going to be a problem for them. That's a huge, huge number. Another study by this, this was a new thing for her. Like she had just started to connect these dots and she, she ran this study and this was like an unexpected result for her. She ran another study that reported that adults of parents who suffered from depression, so this is adults now, were 90% less likely to be affected if they responded that religion or spirituality were important to them. So again, these are high-risk families, and this one hits home in a big way for me. I don't want to get too candid with um, the medical condition of my family or, the, or their medical records, but um, pretty much everyone in my immediate family tree has major problems with mental illness. So all of my grandparents, um, two on one side were serious alcoholics, just self-medicating. Um, on the other side, my grandfather committed suicide because he couldn't obviously cope. Um, and my grandmother was, God bless her and I love her, she's dead now, but she was completely insane. Like she just, she could not comprehend reality at all. Um, both of my parents have had serious problems and, and all of my siblings are, have serious problems. I'm the only one who has never had to have any kind of treatment for mental illness in my family. And at the risk of sounding arrogant, I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that some of this stuff that she's talking about here um, has been really effective in my own life. Okay, so another massive 2012 study involving multiple authors from multiple universities, including Sigmund Freud University in Vienna, Duke University and Harvard Medical School, and that's just to name a few. They looked at over 444 studies over the course of 40 years that were looking at this same correlation um, between religious involvement and mental illness. And then they extracted the most rigorous studies from those 444. So apparently there's a scale between one to 10, um, 10 being the best in terms of academic rigor. And so they took everything from seven and higher and of those, 67% of them reported less depression and faster remission among those with a committed religious practice. So that's religion in general. So what about Catholics specifically? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to, to access statistics on Catholics. 
And the reason for that is, as some of you guys might already know, most people who will self-identify as Catholic don't actually practice the teachings of the church. So if you're trying to gauge the effectiveness of the teachings of the church, um, that's not a really good way to do it. But if you, if you get creative with it, you can drill down and look at um, some of the behaviors and some of the particular teachings of Catholics um, that not all Catholics uh, follow. And from that, you can get a good indication of who's actually following the teachings and what are some of their outcomes. So for example, let's look at natural family planning. I'm sure you guys have heard of, right? So natural family planning as opposed to artificial birth control. 5% of couples practicing NFP get divorced compared to a rate that's closer to 40% in Canada, where I'm from, it's probably pretty similar here. 5% to 40%. That's a huge margin, you guys. Um, what about some of the other tough teachings like um, sex before marriage? According to a study by Nicholas Wolfinger at the University of Utah, respondents who have only ever had sexual intimacy with their spouse, so they were virgins when they got married, um, reported being very happy in their marriage at rates as high as 73%. For women who have had six to 10 sexual partners before marriage, the rate drops 13%. He also noted that couples who saved sex before marriage were least likely to get divorced with rates as low as 6%. It's pretty comparable to, um, to people who practice NFP, compared to over 30% for those with 10 plus sexual partners. So again, that's a huge margin. And to employ the correlation causation objection on something like that, like I don't know how many of you guys here are married, but, but sex is a big part of marriage, obviously. I mean, what's the difference between the platonic friendships that you have and the physically intimate uh, relationships? It's the physical intimacy. That's what, that's what marriage affords your relationship compared to other people. So sex plays a big part in this. If you go into a marriage with a healthy sexual attitude and not a lot of baggage from failed relationships, it stands to reason that your marriage is gonna be a lot healthier for it. Okay, so another study involving multiple researchers, again, from places like Harvard, found that women who attend weekly church services are five times less likely to commit suicide. And then when they drilled down further into that, they found that Protestant women were seven times more likely than Catholic women to commit suicide. And that for Catholic women who attended mass more than once a week, the rate drops to zero. Not a single suicide. Now, suicide's not a really common thing, obviously, but the sample size of this was obviously big enough to get actual instances of suicide, um, even among church-going people. So it's, it's hard to dismiss that one as well. And lastly, this is my favorite statistic. If you hang a rosary from your rearview mirror, you are twice as likely to get noticed by my kids who will say, there goes a Catholic, and they get really excited. <laughs> they actually get really excited, so... Don't discount the power of hanging a rosary from your mirror. So now there's a big risk in misinterpreting what I'm saying, so I want to dispel this possible misinterpretation. I'm not arguing that being Catholic is going to lead to prosperity or that all your dreams are going to come true or that you're never going to have to suffer. Catholics still suffer like anyone else and sometimes quite a bit worse than others, especially outside of, I don't know if we still want to call it Western civilization, but outside places like North America and Europe, uh, Catholics have a rough go of things. We think of places like China and the Middle East. But our joy isn't diminished by our suffering. We get insulated by, by virtue, grace, and faith. And if you ever get the chance to read Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy, that's what it's about. I mean, it's, they say it's the consolation of philosophy. Um, he anthropomorphizes philosophy who comes to him as this beautiful woman who consoles him in his hour of need. Um, and then he, he draws from all his ins inspirations from, from Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and these, these kinds of figures. But it's actually a very, very Christian work. He was a Christian himself, and God is a huge factor in, in, into that equation. <clears throat> so, so we are insulated by our, our suffering, and, and he, he goes into really great detail about that. But there is an undeniable fact that to be virtuous leads to a greater sense of fulfillment in your life and a greater sense of happiness. I gave you a few illustrations like, like, um, like good nutrition and good fitness. I mean, this ties into certain types of virtues that are hard to access for a lot of people. It means that you're gonna be able to do more with your life, you're gonna be able to maximize your potential and make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. People who are virtuous and therefore good, um, they're happy even if things don't go their way. People who are evil are wretched no matter what, even if things do go their way. 
So maybe you're listening to this thinking, that all sounds good, but what, what does this look like? How do I actually access the church's teachings uh, and apply them to my life? So how are we doing for time there, Garrett? Are we we're pretty good? Okay, good. So with the amount of time I got left, I just I want to leave you with some practical application and some specific advice about how you can start to really take hold your faith and insulate yourself as you go forward. So the first bit of advice I would give, and I've already alluded to this, is to study your faith. If you want to follow this user's manual, you obviously have to know what it says. So start reading scripture, start referencing the catechism for your big questions, pick up some of those books that I had mentioned, and start taking the church's tough teaching seriously. Do not fall into this trap of acting like your assumptions, your just your givens, are more dialed into reality than the culmination of 2,000 years plus of the smartest people thinking about thinking. Like, you're just not that brilliant, you guys. <laughs> okay, number two is get grace. And this one, if I could, uh, yeah, I'm going to emphasize this one. I'm going I'm to go out on a limb and say this is the most important one. Grace is the rocket fuel that we run on. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned you, you are, you will fall short of your goals to grow in wisdom, maturity, and holiness if you aren't filling up your, take, your tank on grace at regular intervals. So by the way, grace, this is a, this is a word we throw around a lot in Catholicism and Christianity in general. Um, so it's helpful to define what we mean by grace. Grace is God's divine life that he infuses into us, that he shares with us so that we can become divine and therefore good like him. It's how we grow in holiness. C.S. Lewis calls it God's good infection. Um, you know, like when you spend a lot of time with a certain person, they start to wear off on you a little bit. You start to share their, their mannerisms, their way of speaking, uh, their sense of humor, and some of their moral traits as well, right? It's the same thing with God. So the best way to get the right kind of exposure to God that we need is, you can probably guess, is by receiving the sacraments. This is like one of the most pronounced ways that God shares himself with us. Like think of, a, think of the Eucharist. Like we've all heard the cliche, you are what you eat, right? Well, if we eat God, body, blood, soul, and divinity, um, it gets, his, his divinity literally, physically gets infused into us and becomes a part of us. That's what's so beautiful about the incarnation. God becoming man so that we can share in his divinity and so that he stoops down to reach down to us and then elevates us into his divinity. And that's one of the most profound ways he does it. So this means going to mass at least weekly. This means going to confession at least monthly. And then the other sacraments at various intervals as, as needed. The next thing you're going to want to do to get grace is you need to have a consistent prayer life. And at a minimum, you should be praying twice a day. So once when you wake up as part of your morning routine, uh, I know it's hard to just roll out of bed and start praying. You'll probably just fall back asleep. Um, like I said, I, I have a physical fitness routine, so I'll go up and I'll go for a run, and then I'll come back and I'll pray, and that's a good way to just have a good sense of like energy and, and ready to go and to start my day right. Um, and then once when you, when you go to bed, and the quality and the character of, of those, those two dimensions of prayer should, should re reflect your daily routine. So when you get up for the day, you're trying to prepare yourself for your day. You want to be effective in school or work or in your relationships or whatever you're doing. So ask God for grace and help in those moments. Um, the way I pray is, um, I, got, I actually got this from Pope Francis, um, which is, he called it like the five finger prayer. Um, and I don't know what each finger correlates to, but the general principle was pray for other people first. So pray for the people that are most intimate in your sphere of influence. So your siblings, your spouse, your friends, your family, and then circle out a little bit, branch out, pray for acquaintances, pray for the church, pray for your priest, uh, pray for people who are suffering that you know about. Like I've got a whole running list of people I know who are sick or suffering or grieving or otherwise. Pray for people that have died that you know. They probably still need your help. Like the journey doesn't end at the grave as we all, we all know this, right? Um, pray for the church and then pray for yourself. So that's, it's at the very end. And usually what's brilliant about this is that it gives you the right context to start thinking about yourself. When you spend enough time thinking about everybody else and the things that they're going through and what their needs are, then you can start thinking about yourself without an inordinate emphasis on yourself. Because that's what we do 
intrinsically, right? We're not very good at the math on this. There's what, like seven to eight billion people in the world, and we spend 90% of our time thinking about ourselves, about my goals, my success, my situation, my drama, whatever. Um, there's a whole other, there's billions of other stories that are going on out there. It's worthwhile taking at least 20 minutes in your morning to start thinking about some other people and what they might need before you start thinking about your own. And that self-forgetfulness is, it's just the antidote to all of our dysfunction. Like I'm telling you, the more you can forget your own issues and think about other people, the more you don't think about your issues and you don't carry them around with you, you don't have that burden of anxiety about overthinking your, your stuff that really doesn't matter in the big picture when you know other people have serious things going on in their lives too. Okay. So prayer. Um, if you don't know how to get started with prayer, um, you can use the formal prayers of the church too. I know we always get encouraged to, uh, to be candid and say whatever's on your mind. Come to God just as you are. I see that on church signs everywhere. Come as you are. This is the big cliche of modern Christianity. That's true. Yeah, have a conversation with God. But prayer isn't about conforming God to yourself. It's not all about you. It's about being conformed to God. And formal prayers... Prayers that we inherit from the saints and the wisdom of the church have a way of conforming us to God and to the community, to the body of Christ. So spend, you know, half hour praying a rosary a day. That's a brilliant way to get a lot of grace in my experience. Okay, so number three is grow in virtue. So virtues are a habitual disposition to do what is good. So they're character traits that we should be aiming for and measuring ourselves against constantly as we, because we will fall short of these. So it's a good standard to have and say, I know what these virtues look like and I can compare myself to them rather than my friends. There's nothing more unhealthy if you're going to be comparing than comparing yourself to people that aren't you. Compare yourself to the best version of yourself based on what you understand the virtues to be and then use that as your standard. And then as you fall short of that, start over again, seek the grace you need to grow in holiness. I'm going to give you a quick rundown on, on what the, the virtues are. So there's four, four cardinal virtues, and there's three theological virtues. The cardinal virtues, we call them cardinal because they're, the, they're like the hinge virtues that all the other virtues uh, descend from. And these are, these are in order, I believe. I took these off the top of my head. I probably should have double-checked, but I'm pretty sure this is the order that St. Thomas puts them in and that Aristotle puts them in. So the first one is prudence which is, it's like wisdom and the ability to discern and know what is good. You can't do and, or become what is good unless you first understand what is good. So you have to seek prudence. The next one is justice. Justice means um, giving what is due to God and to your neighbor and having fair dealings in all of your interactions. Okay, don't just try to cut corners and take advantage of situations for yourself. Give people what they are due. This comes down to the dignity and the glory and the honor that we owe to God, simply for the fact that he's God, not because he's up there being like, hey, don't, don't, don't ignore me. Like he's, we owe it to him by virtue of who he is and who we are in proximity to him. And then the dignity that you owe other people as people who are created in his image. Even if, they're, even if they're dysfunctional, even if they cause you problems in life, you still owe them a certain measure of respect and dignity. Okay, so that's justice. The next one is fortitude, which means just standing firm in your resolve to be and to do good, even when you're, you're tempted and you're tested. And that even when you're suffering, you persist through that no matter what. And then the last one is temperance. Temperance is, is self-control, um, especially of your, your sensual appetites. So like food and sex and these kinds of things. See, it's, it's self-mastery. One of my favorite quotes on the other side of this is that in the absence of any effort, you will become the sum of your appetite. It'll just become a walking craving. And that's a pretty disgusting image of a, of a person, if I can be like really, really explicit with that. So temperance, temperance is a big one, obviously. I know it's number four, but don't discount temperance. Okay, then there's the three theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love. I'm not gonna go into detail on these because these are really, really deep, and I'm not a theologian. Um, you can spend your whole life unpacking these, and as Catholics, you should be doing that. Um, so study, study the theological virtues and, and seek them for yourself. You guys will already have had some, some experience of this, um, given that you have faith. You have that gift of faith. It might just be a little spark at this point, or it might be a big faith. I, I, 
I don't know by the looks of you, some of you look like you're champions and, 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 and like heavyweights of the faith, but um, you've got that gift and you've got that experience, so nurture it, develop it, and, and grow in your understanding of it. Number two, or number two, number four is pursue a vocation. So your vocation is your life's purpose. It's how you intend to serve the needs of others as a Christian ought to. Uh, and like I said, in the absence of some kind of purpose like this, we tend to just focus on self. My career, my ambition, my car, my salary, my situations, how people are, are conforming to what I want them to be doing. Your vocation is how you die to self. And it's really important to understand that before you go into an actual vocation. So whether you're discerning marriage or the religious life or priesthood, this is about serving other people and having your love tested. It's really easy to flatter yourself and convince yourself, that I'm, I'm super, I'm chill, I'm easygoing, I'm a loving person, until you are taken to your, the limits of what you're able to do with love. So my experience is as a husband and as a parent, just, just first con- blending your life with somebody else. Um, someone with a, comp- my wife, like on the, uh, she does all the personality tests. I'm not really into that myself, but she does them and she's done them for me on my behalf. And she's determined that we are the exact opposite personality type. Um, and and, and um, I think it's my, the Myers-Briggs one says that we're like the least compatible. Like we'll just never get along. And frankly, like our marriage has been actually easy compared to a lot of people I know. Like it, it feels easy a lot of the time. And I think that that's both because we're committed to this idea of loving each other, of serving um, somebody else's needs. Love means to will the good of another person. It doesn't mean make me feel infatuated with somebody. It means willing their good, doing whatever you can to make sure that their, their happiness is being achieved and that, that goodness is pervasive in their life. That's what it means to love somebody else. So then as, as children come into that equation again, it's gonna be d- dirty diapers, it's gonna be never sleeping when you want to, it's gonna be never having time for a lot of the hobbies that you used to have. It's, it's an intense boot camp of testing your ability to love somebody else. But at the same time, they're pretty adorable, they look like you, um, so there's, there's, there's some bonuses there as well. And you'll find that it's a suffering that brings joy. That's the, that is the great paradox of life, that suffering can yield joy. Nobody outside of Catholicism, well, I shouldn't say this. I mean, there's, there are forms of asceticism that exist outside of Catholicism, but this notion of vocation is really unique to, to our Catholic faith and this paradox of suffering bringing true and authentic happiness in life. So go for your vocation. Start thinking about it now, even if you're not living it yet. Uh, that's a, I think that's a real common trap for people is, uh, I'm not married yet, so I'm not living my vocation. If you've discerned marriage, start acting like your vocation starts today. Start trying to develop yourself. Become the person that is worth marrying. Become the kind of person that is worthy of whoever your dream spouse might be down the road. Start living your vocation right now. This isn't something you just suspend until the day happens and all of a sudden, oh, wow, somebody likes me, right? Start doing it right now. Okay, number five is kill your screens. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm technically a millennial by like 28 days. So <laughs> I have a bit of a foot in like the Gen X and the, the Gen X had this motto of kill your TV because they all understood that this is something that just breeds compulsion. It turns you into a tool of somebody else's agenda. Like that's what sophistry is. Sophistry, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that term, but Socrates had always had these dialogues in ancient Greece, and he would dialogue with the sophists, who were people who were quite brilliant, quite intelligent, and able to um, achieve their objectives by talking people into things. They would have pre-scripted conversations where they've, they've manicured their script and what they want to say to you to turn you into a tool of their agenda to get you to pay them what they might want or to sell you something or to manipulate you. That's what sophistry is. And that's exactly what modern media and marketing and advertising are. And I can say that because I work in that industry. Um, I don't work in advertising, thank God. I've been brought into some advertising scenarios where I had to sit in on, on strategic meetings with advertising executives where they were hatching the next plot to implement culture. 
Like our modern pop culture is actually conceived in advertising rooms. We think it's like this great thing. It's not. It's, it's all designed to turn you into a consumeristic tool. So don't let that happen. Our screens, our cell phones, and the software that they use are designed to be addictive. That's not hyperbole. That's actually true. Um, there are, there's a whole army of psychologists that work at Facebook. Why would they need that? If they're a tech company, they're not a tech company. They're an advertising company. So is Google. They're, everything that they do is to try to get you guys to just mindlessly do this and keep you doing it so that they can say, they can tell their advertising companies that they served a quota and that they, you guys saw their ads. Anything that breeds compulsion and addiction interferes with and competes with virtue. So if you want to grow in virtue, you guys have to kill your screens. Put limits on them. Put software on them. Like take weekends away from it. This is, this is huge. How much time do I have? I'm, I'm just ranting at this point. This isn't even in my notes. Four minutes, okay. Um, this is not in my notes, but there's a psychologist that, um, he's kind of a family friend, especially on my wife's side of the family. Um, and so we go down to uh, Calgary, which is about three hours south of where I live, to visit them once in a while. And he's a psychologist that works at the university there in Calgary. And the last time we got to go see him, He's, he's had a pretty lengthy career, so he's sort of seen the progression of, of things that have happened in our culture, especially this, this uh, inclusion of, of tech in our culture. And I asked him, like, have you noticed a change, a shift in, in some of the issues that you're dealing with, with with young people? And he said, back in the day, you know, the 80s and the 90s, it was pretty diverse. You'd get people coming in with all kinds of things. And as a psychologist, you really had to be able to understand all the, the different nuances of different issues that people had. He said, now it's anxiety across the board. Everybody has anxiety. And anxiety, I don't know if you guys know this, but anxiety is a symptom of addiction. Like, if any of you guys smoke, you'll know this, that that craving is an anxiety. It's just this sort of low-level anxiety that builds the longer you go without having a smoke. The longer you go without logging in and checking your feed and checking your notifi notifications and getting that little dopamine kick, which is literally what they designed Facebook to do. Um, there's, a, there's a book coming out called, uh, I think it's already out, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And, and it's about this. I think Sean Parker's the guy's name. He's one of the original executives uh, at Facebook. He, he admits they designed the software to give you a dopamine kick to keep you hooked on it. This is, this is really, really huge, and it's breeding anxiety across our entire generation. Like, we're all just paralyzed. That's why we need safe spaces, because we can't cope, right? Like, because we have this level of anxiety. Anything else just sets us over the edge, and it's because of this technology in large part. Okay, so in conclusion, I hope this gives you a crude sketch of why, beyond just the abstract arguments, why it's really important for you guys to take your faith seriously. If you've inherited this, this is like, this is a gift from God, literally. Like, I, I, I take it for granted now because I've been Catholic for a while, but like, if I could have had some of this wisdom growing up, like, I, it would have saved me a lot of grief, especially some of the story I told you about. So I care about your guys' lives. I care about... Um, your ability to avoid crashing into walls and into icebergs. So I don't want to hear that happening. I hope you can take some of this advice. This was, again, really important for me when I was your age, and I've been able to, to use it in, in my, my own life, and it's, it's spared me from a lot. So thanks for listening. God bless, and good luck as you guys go forward.